Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders, and I lead our team of preachers here uh, for Grace Fellowship Church. If this is your first time with us, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for uh, coming and spending this time with us this morning. I want to start this morning by reading you a few quotes, just a few, and let's see if you can recognize any of them. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. By his wounds you have been healed. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He was numbered with the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Lord, who has believed our report? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I will put my trust in him. The root of Jesse will come. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. For who has understood the mind of the Lord? A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Have you heard any of these things before? You can probably guess what connects each of these quotations. Every one of these sentences comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And every one of them that I just read is quoted in the New Testament. And I didn't even list every quote of Isaiah in the New Testament. There are many more of them that are less well known that I could add to that list. And the ones I just quoted are merely the explicit quotations where a New Testament author says something like, it is written, or as it says in the book of the prophet Isaiah. But if I were to list out for you just the allusions and the phrases that the New Testament authors borrow from the book of Isaiah, the list would go on and on and on and on. Let me remind you of just a handful of them. Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, New heavens and new earth. He gave himself for our sins. Light for the nations. By his wounds you are healed. The suffering servant. A ransom for many. Suffer and be rejected. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The many will be made righteous. Christ died for our sins. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Unquenchable fire being taught of God. Light for the Gentiles. Blessings of David. A remnant shall be saved. Found by those who didn't seek me. A disobedient people. 
a spirit of stupor, the wisdom of the wise, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, speak in strange tongues, the breath of his mouth, feeble hands and weak knees, feet swift to shed blood, like clay in the hands of a potter, lest tomorrow we die, the acceptable time, the day of salvation, God supplies rain and seed, a precious cornerstone, owning a vineyard and expecting it to bear fruit. You are my witnesses. I am the first and the last. The skies roll up like a scroll, a robe stained in blood, no hunger or thirst. Wipe away every tear. The children God has given me. Behold your God. My first goal this morning is simply to make a case for why we should study the book of Isaiah. And that case rests on a simple fact, which is this, that it would be a horrendous understatement to say that the New Testament authors relied heavily on the book of Isaiah. You see, the New Testament authors quoted or alluded to Isaiah more than 400 times, more than any other Old Testament book except perhaps the Psalms, almost every New Testament book references Isaiah in some way. Jesus defined his ministry and his identity in terms of categories taken from Isaiah. Isaiah is so ridiculously influential on the shaping of the New Testament and therefore on the Christian faith that it's almost impossible to conceive of what Christianity would be like without Isaiah's labels and categories. If we had no suffering servant, if we had no righteous one given for many transgressors, if we had no light to the nations and no unquenchable fire or new heavens and new earth, Christianity would have no guts left to it. So why should we study Isaiah? Because Jesus and the New Testament authors profoundly relied on Isaiah both to describe and to shape what they were trying to do. Let me repeat. We should study Isaiah because Jesus and the New Testament authors profoundly relied on Isaiah both to describe and to shape what they were trying to do. Brothers and sisters, if we don't get Isaiah, we don't get Jesus. So we see that the New Testament relies tremendously on Isaiah. But I need to ask why. Why did they rely so heavily on Isaiah? Let me give you three quick reasons here. Three clear pictures that Isaiah gives us more so than any other Old Testament book so that the New Testament draws on it. The first picture that Isaiah gives us is one of the clearest pictures of God. Isaiah gives us a very clear picture of God. Reading this book of Isaiah, we'll learn about God's personality, his love, his promises, his anger, his hope, his uniqueness, his unchanging nature, his eternal existence, his sovereign power, his holiness, his mercy, his goodness, his righteousness, his truth, his word, and his covenant. We will get one of the clearest pictures of God. Second, the second picture Isaiah gives us is one of the clearest pictures of who we are and what we need. 
who we are and what we need. Reading this book of Isaiah, we'll learn about what we were created for, what went wrong, why it went wrong, what we can do about it, what we can't do about it, what we love, what we fear, what societies will always struggle with, and we'll learn how to answer some of the most challenging questions of human existence. So Isaiah gives us a clear picture of God. It gives us a clear picture of ourselves and what we need. And third, Isaiah gives us a clear picture of what God is doing in the world and for humanity. A clear picture of what God is doing in the world and for humanity. Reading the book of Isaiah, we'll learn about God's program for social renewal, humanitarianism, overcoming racism, sexism, and classism. We'll learn about where this world is heading and how we can be a part of that trajectory. We'll learn that what we currently see and feel is not all there is. We'll find hope that something better is coming and that it's worth it to wait and endure and remain steadfast in the truth, however much we may suffer for it. So we get a clear picture of what God is doing in the world, and for humanity. Now, despite the clarity that Isaiah gives us in these three areas, many people, including Christians, blatantly ignore or misconstrue Isaiah and what he said. For example, let me give you a few examples. We think the promise of Emmanuel being born to a virgin was first and foremost a prediction about the birth of Jesus. And we miss the important role Isaiah's own son played in signifying God's promises in his day to help understand what God was doing so that we would understand Jesus better. Another example, we centralize the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 around the identity of Jesus Christ as we ought. But if we do that too hastily, we neglect some crucial implications Isaiah wants to make about communal solidarity and social responsibility. When we get to that part of the book, we need to make sure we don't miss this fact. That we'll understand Jesus is the suffering servant when we understand how God thinks about his people corporately and their responsibility. Another example. Many religion classes and professors and textbooks will miss the fundamental point of Isaiah because they're really busy breaking the book up into little pieces and claiming that different sections must have had different authors. You'll hear that wherever you turn when people talk about this book. So you need to understand how to read this book. Another example. Many of us remain blind to the vestiges of racism and white supremacy both in the larger culture and in the church of Jesus Christ. And these vestiges clog our lives and they defame God's glorious purposes, but they are things to which Isaiah speaks in direct opposition. I, personally, have self-consciously avoided the book of Isaiah through my 19 years as a missionary, a preacher, and a Bible teacher. I've avoided it on purpose. I'm not proud of this fact. I've just always been scared of Isaiah. I'm scared of the poetry because I read the book and I feel like I can't get a grip anywhere in the text. 
I'm scared of the repetition, lest people get bored of hearing constant messages about sin and judgment. And I'm scared, honestly, of the social justice implications of this book, because I would honestly rather keep things personal and private. But the Lord, friends, has led us to this book. He's led me to this book. I've become convinced that we need to swim in this book for a little while, possibly it might take us about a year, in hopes that God's words would startle us with God's glory and show us God's righteousness through God's servant who came to rescue every nation on God's earth, thus shaping our faith and our lives as God's people and preparing us to live forever in God's new city on God's new earth after God's new heaven comes down and finally recaptures all of God's creation. That's what Isaiah is about. And so we need to take a closer look at this pivotal book which God has caused to be written down for our good and for the good of the world. This book, which is, according to verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. As we now dig into chapter 1 and take a look at it, take note because this chapter, this first chapter, introduces most of the themes that will be developed in the rest of the book. So I'm going to hit on them, make sure we understand them, but I won't belabor them this morning. We'll have plenty of time to cover them in the months to come. We'll see in chapter 1 that Yahweh makes a case against his people, and then he makes an offer for his people. Let's now ask God's help as we come to consider the, the case he makes against his people. Please join me in praying. Our Father, please help us to see amazing things in your word. Help us to come with eager anticipation to this crucial book that you have given us. Help us to see you and to see Jesus and to see our responsibility more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1, Yahweh makes a case against his people. Let me read it. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. 
It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If Yahweh of armies had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This section divides into two parts. Verses 2 through 9 outline the specific charge that God makes against his people. And then verses 10 to 15 give us the evidence or the basis for this charge. So we have the charge, and then we'll have the evidence. First, the charge. Verse 2, heaven and earth are called to bear witness to the accusation that Yahweh has reared his own children, yet upon coming of age they have rebelled. And it's crucial to understand the nature of God's charge, which is rebellion. His charge is not a charge of personal loss or of innocent wandering or of honest mistakes or of personality deficiencies or creaturely weaknesses. God's children are not innocent victims here. They are not rowdy relatives. They are not confused adolescents. They are rebellious. They have actively turned against their heavenly father. They are guilty, not of making mistakes, but of committing cosmic treason against their divine king. How does this apply? Let me go to some application here. Friends, we need to be clear about our greatest problem. Our greatest problem. Now, it's true that we are weak people, and it's true that we make mistakes. Our circumstances are unfavorable to us and our experiences are sometimes unfortunate. Mental illness is real. Bodily weakness happens. But we need to give space and time to understand all of those factors about human existence. But even while we do that, we must never forget what is the most important, the most determining factor in your life's direction. And it is your heart's allegiance. Your heart's allegiance. Your and my biggest 
problem is not about what happens to us, nor about the proclivities of our body or our mind. But our biggest problem is our rebellion. It is the treason we commit whenever we turn away from our God to any created thing to satisfy us or to save us. Verses 3 through 8 go on to give three metaphors to describe the rebellion of God's people. Having stated the charge, he now illustrates it for us with three metaphors. And here's where we get our first taste of Isaiah's wonderful poetry to communicate his message. In verse 3, he says, They are like a domestic animal that doesn't come back to the barn at supper time. In verses 4 through 6, he says, They are like a body that is terribly sick because it was left wounded and bleeding out on a battlefield, and now the fever and the chills and the seizures just won't go away. And then in verses 7 through eight, seven and 8, he says, they're like a desolate field or a besieged city. And it can be helpful to understand what he means by some of these things. He talks about that they are like a booth in a vineyard. They are like a lodge in a cucumber field. What we need to understand is that during harvest time in Israel, they would set up temporary huts out in the field so that the workers, the harvest workers, could sleep out in the field during the busiest season of the year. They wouldn't lose too much time traveling between home and the field each day. They would just camp out there. But when harvest time was over, they'd all go back home, and those huts, those booths, would be desolate and unpopulated. If Isaiah were around today, I think he might say something like, the daughter of Zion is left like a college campus a week or two after graduation. You know what it's like to walk around with little to no activity and your memories are stirred up, but it just feels empty and desolate. That's what it's like to be rebellious children. Always in this state of desolation with no life, or vibrant health. And verse 9 then is the pitiful conclusion. If Yahweh of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would have been completely wiped out. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities on the Palestinian plain where God had rained fire and sulfur from heaven to wipe out the wicked completely. So we see the charge that they are rebellious children Illustrated with three metaphors and a pitiful conclusion. Verses 10 to 15 then go on to provide the evidence. The evidence of this charge. How do you know they are rebellious children? And look at what he says. In verse 11, he says they offer sacrifices. And in verse 12, he says they fill this city with pilgrims during the annual feasts. They're trampling my courts. And in verse 13, he says... They burn incense to Yahweh and they give him gifts. And they also celebrate the holy days that had been prescribed for them by the law of Yahweh through Moses. And in verse 14, he says that they're celebrating monthly ceremonies and the three week-long annual feasts that had been commanded. And in verse 15, he says they pray fervently to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. But wait, they should say, and we should say. Verse 12 asks a question. Who has required these things of you? And they would rightly answer, You did! You did! 
We're just obeying everything you told us to do in the Torah, those first five books that Moses wrote. And you see Isaiah, he's building a case and he heightens the tension and he delays the true evidence of their rebellion until the end of this stanza. And he says, even though you do all these things, verse 15 concludes with the statement, your hands are full of blood. Here is the problem. Here is the evidence. We'll see in the next few verses that the blood on their hands is not the blood of the animals that they have slaughtered in obedience to their father in sacrifice. It is the blood of the innocent human victims of their oppression and their injustice. The application for us is this. Religious participation is not the same thing as faithful allegiance. Religious participation is not the same thing as faithful allegiance. If you live a different life, if you are a different person inside this church building, then you are outside this church building. You are not living in allegiance to your heavenly Father. If you come here and you sing the songs with us and you listen to the sermons and you converse politely and you help behind the scenes or even up front and then you go home and you yell at your family and you lie to your employer and you view pornography on the internet or you shut your eyes to the needs of your neighbors or this community, please don't think you can manipulate God by showing up at church, giving up a few hours of your time, and singing a few songs. God says he hates that. Now, I'm not speaking to the visitor today or the inquisitor. I'm speaking to the regular attenders. God hates that. And the promise of God for you is in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He's made his charge. Now, he makes an offer. Verses 16 to 31. Let me read it. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. 
how the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, Yahweh of armies, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. And like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender. And his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. In this second half of the chapter, Yahweh makes an offer. He guarantees it with a shift in fortune, and he promises a sure result. Let me show you these things real quick. First here, he makes an offer. He makes an offer in verses 16 to 20, and the offer is simply this. Eat or be eaten. Eat or be eaten. Verse 16, he says, remove your evil deeds. In 17, replace them with good and justice. Verse 18, listen to reason, and your sins can be cleansed like snow. Verse 19, he says, do these things. Remove the evil. Listen to my reason. Let me cleanse your sins, and you will eat the good of the land. Part one of the offer is eat. But, he says in verse 20, ignore my pleas, refuse and rebel, and you shall be eaten by the sword. So eat or be eaten. It's up to you. Keep your allegiance to yourself and be destroyed for it. Or offer your allegiance to your heavenly Father and you will find unimaginable bounty. That's the offer. He moves on to describe a shift in fortune. Verses 21 to 27. A shift in fortune. And the shift in fortune is this. In verse 21, he talks about the city that was once the faithful city. In verses 22 to 23, it has now become faithless. But 24 and 25, Yahweh will personally step in to make it right. And verse 26, he will make the city faithful once again. Those who repent will be redeemed by Yahweh's righteousness in verse 27. So the faithful city became faithless, but God will make it faithful once again. There's the shift in fortune. 
when he talks about those who repent and who repent will be redeemed, we need to note that their repentance, their setting aside of their evil deeds and doing good, is not the thing that saves them. Yahweh says in verses 24 and 25, it is Yahweh who saves them. When they hold fast, they're believing allegiance to him. But holding on to their evil deeds is evidence that they are not holding their allegiance to him. Now we'll have to read the rest of the book to see if they are willing to receive Yahweh's purging here. If they are willing to heed him and return in allegiance to him so they can be purified and have their sins washed away. But that's the shift in fortune. He ends here with a sure result. In verses 28 to 31, the sure result is simply this, that those who persist in rebellion will not end well. Those who persist in rebellion will not end well. Look at the words he uses in verses 28 to 31. They will be broken. They will be consumed. They will be ashamed blushing, withering, waterless, and flammable. They will burn. This is a sure promise. Those who refuse allegiance to Yahweh God as demonstrated by their refusal to wash the blood from their hands, they will be turned into kindling, just like the wood their false gods are made of. And so we get to the end of this chapter and we're left with a few unanswered questions. Who exactly is it that's guilty of this sin and rebellion? What nations are you talking about? I know We know it's your people here. But what about all those other nations out there, God? We'll learn more about that in chapters to come. How exactly, another unanswered question, how exactly will God make a way to purge their sins. Hasn't told us yet. Also, what blessings can they expect if they cling to Yahweh? What will they get to eat? And a fourth unanswered question, what is the consuming fire that awaits those who refuse to change? I can't answer these questions now, but the rest of Isaiah will do that for us. And so, if you are here Today, and you don't consider yourself a Christian, please understand that in God's world, education, philanthropy, and morality will never solve humanity's fundamental problem of treasonous allegiance to impotent deities. We don't think of them as deities, but today we have plenty of deities. Tolerance, humanism, diversity, self-actualization, Please help us to restore our city to what it was created to be. And you can do that by pledging your allegiance to the only God who can bring true righteousness. And then he can stamp his righteous image on us and on this community in which we live and work. For now, you can just take note of the map of the book on the opposite side to your outline. We have a little map of Isaiah there so you can know where we are as we work through the book. Because the answer to all these concerns is rooted in the true identity of the one to whom we owe our allegiance. In chapters 2 through 39, Isaiah will reveal him as the king 
who rules the world. In chapters 40 to 55, Isaiah will reveal him as the servant who gave his life for his people. And in chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah will reveal him as the conqueror who will overcome evil, set everything straight, and make everything right one day. And we now know today what Isaiah didn't, that his name is Jesus. Let's offer him our full allegiance. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us enough to to tell us what you really think and to open our eyes to our situation and our condition. Please shake us uh, out of our stupor, however many of us may have been willfully blind like myself and wanting to just keep things easy and close to home and personal. Please shake us up through this book, through this series, that we might reflect your glory in the world around us, that we might turn to Jesus and offer him alone our full allegiance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.